Welcome. You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Nordics, a podcast constructed to enrich our tech community by connecting some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordics region. I am Christopher Asbridge, and I help connect businesses with talented freelancers, and I will be your host. So welcome to another installment of Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Helgen Borgensen, Noelia Amanza, and Anneli uh, Barthardy. Sorry, names are my forte at all. Um, today, we are going to discuss something I'm really excited about, the health tech industry, and how to bring innovation quickly to such a regulated industry. But first of all, let's talk around my panelists. Um, Helena, tell me about yourself. Well, thank you, Chris. Yes, Helena Börjesson is my name, and I'm the Chief Technology Officer of Bull Diagnostics. And at Bull, we are in the diagnostic and hematology business. So we provide solutions for the absolutely most common medical test you can ever get, the blood analysis. So that's what we do. Okay, amazing, amazing. And then Noelia, tell me a bit about yourself there. Yeah, thanks for the warm welcome here. I'm Noelia. I've been working within the field of innovation for the past 20 years. I've been working mostly in the international healthcare settings, uh, changing uh, the Bolivian healthcare system to to being in Sweden and, and working internationally with with one of the emergency service providers on a global level as well, trying to drive open innovation. And I usually describe myself as having four different legs, which I stand on, which is IT, tech, and health tech. And the other one is healthcare and life science. Third one is innovation, innovation management. And the fourth is defense industry in all sorts. Comes a lot with the blue lights on. Wow, sounds pretty cool. And then Ellie, <laughs> we'll go come to you last but not least. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I've been working also actually a lot with innovation and kind of evolution of technologies and industries the last 10 years or so, uh, but in different industries. Uh, right now I'm uh, working at a company in FinTech, which is a lab that's helping incubate and scale up uh, disruptive financial technologies. Uh, but prior to this, I myself have a background in mental health challenges uh, from a personal and family perspective and have worked on and launched a company around connecting people with mental health challenges to digital tools and solutions. Uh, and so spent a couple of years working on that after several years of trying to figure that out in my own personal space. So I really appreciate being able to be included with uh, such great other panelists. Okay, amazing, amazing. Now it's great we've all established a connection with each other. It's the first time um, you've all met. Um, you've all have something very similar in common or very similar backgrounds, which is amazing. And we're here to discuss innovation in a such a regulated industry, such as the health tech industry. Health tech affects us all, and it is the leading pioneer in technology at the moment in time. So I came to you, or each of you, and I actually to pose a question about why you're in the industry and what where do you think the industry is going and how how can we bring innovation quickly to this industry that's heavily regulated so first of all Nelly we'll start with your question you came to me sorry it's a bit of a long-winded question here and um, you came to me with a quote saying my quote or question or topic on this regulated digital health is what are the panelists perspectives on preventative technologies before someone gets ill versus treatment technologies 
and what what level is regulation important to protect people and could it be a barrier to access fantastic question to kick us off can you tell us a little bit more for me yeah uh, so as i mentioned coming from both the connection into digital health space and then also from mental health which i think poses also some unique challenges and um, i'm very curious in this perspective that there's a lot of solutions uh, it could be hardware it could be pharmacological it could be digital and um, that are of course, treatment methodologies. Uh, and if someone has clinical challenges or diagnoses, then it's very important to protect uh, their safety, um, whether it's mental health, more physical health or any other. But at the same time, there we know more and more, and we also see insurance companies and others focusing more and more on preventative uh, steps where there are people who have a family history but have no signs themselves, or have early indicators that we know can lead to more severe symptoms or a diagnosis of something later. Um, so I was just very curious to hear uh, from such experienced panelists what your own perspective has been in, um, where is the boundary between protecting people and keeping them safe and rightfully so, and also potentially labeling things uh, as medical treatment preventatively which may actually reduce people being able to get access, uh, whether you think that's true or not, that's also open for discussion. I think that's such an interesting topic, Anneli, that you bring up. And me being in, at this point in time, also in the in vitro diagnostic space, which is actually just mm -hmm. in between, I have a history and background both in working in the more treatment regulated space, but now in in vitro diagnostics, and then of course you have the more unregulated topics as well. For me, it somewhere starts with if you are actually affecting the diagnosis of the of the patient and the person. And of course, it's sort of in line with some of the regulations as well. But I think it's also poses a good guidance in such a conversation that you bring up. What do we do where, as long as it affects the diagnosis or the treatment of the patient, regardless if it's only a conversation or not, uh, I think that's a, that's a good starting point. Uh, it's not the whole truth, but at least um, that's that's a sort of a, a guideline that I, I try to live by, at least. I couldn't have said it better myself, <laughs> so, to be honest with you. Um, it, it certainly becomes a clear thing when you talk about the the interface between health tech and the, the telemedicine and the uh, the verticals that we can see in in, in um, remote patient monitoring and and where do we draw this line between being preventive? How much information do we need, and how much is this information also giving us access to actually have an impact on the on the person um, on on the particular person? And what do we as user or as a person? what do we want to have from this product that we're using or the service that we're looking into? So I think this is a really complex um, uh, topic to talk about in terms of the the, uh, the purpose of the service or um, the, pr the product itself and also the uh, where we as a company aim when we want to do something like this and, and what kind of um, penetrating impact that we are looking to have for, for the particular persons and users of it. 
But as as you were talking about Helen, I think that you were kind of spot on because during the two past past years, I've been actually looking very much into uh, to the to the new MDR uh, regulations and all of these things, which is when you when you look at from from one of my perspectives that I've had from a telemedicine company. Are you actually having a, an, a medical device using this interface of communication? Because then we could say that this meeting, Teams, also is a medical device, which it, which it is not. Then we also are talking about and around the, um, the purpose of the use of the product. But itself, the product itself, if you're going to look into the software as a medical device, for example, then it's not. So it's 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 a really tricky question, and I don't think I can have a clear answer to this um, in a long time. And just to keep on what you said, Noelia, I think also when we talk also about this as communication platforms, I think as long as you what you provide is the same as you would provide if you met physically in a room, then that's obviously not sort of the the product or the software or teams whatever that brings the medical device thing i think it becomes more tricky when you think of patient monitoring when maybe the the solution itself actually at least reports the results might even already pose uh, pose also warning signals and flags etc might you might want to call your doctor now or whatever and th then we are in we're just moving in this uh, on this scale of simply talking to each other with another framework teams or gradually moving all the way of course all the way up to treatment at some point which i think Anneli would be great to hear your in input because you are also in been working on the mental health perspective and there i'm guessing that a lot of the treatments can actually also be provided in this shape and form well that's the interesting thing and i like what you were saying helena about uh when the system itself is the system giving indicators or taking decisions potentially versus a trained healthcare provider on the other side of a, a video call uh, and then i agree that's where you have to start to pay close attention to where is that line. Um, and we looked into one of our value propositions for my company, Simply Broken, was that there's 20,000 mental health apps on the app stores right now, according to the American Psychological Association. Uh, and I mean, they cover the entire spectrum of, you know, mindful a, chat, a mindful chatbot to actual post-traumatic stress, journaling, and, and everything in between. Um, and there's very much gray zone space. Like there is no fast line, especially in mental health, right? The only thing that typically is the divider is if there's a diagnosis. If someone has a diagnosis, we know, yes, this person needs some clinical support or, or psychological treatment of more formal care. Before that, it's a gray zone. Is this person seriously ill or not? Is it someone who's coping with something. Um, and so back to what you said, Noelia, there is no yes, no answer to my question. And I hadn't expected that, but I find that we struggled with the challenge that there's a lot of very poor quality things, especially when we get into digital treatments um, where we use, again, like chat bots and things like that. They can be super helpful to find out information, take information, but it's a very big risk area when they start to give advice and indicators uh, because it also doesn't know what it might be missing and the person themselves don't know. Um, and that's that space where I think 
part of the biggest risk comes uh, in that what is the risk of this, the advice given or the advice that might be missed by using this tool and not having something else. Uh, but in, in the mental health case, there's so many people who are untreated or don't seek treatment. Um, so then you also have to balance from an innovation perspective. Is it more important that people get access to something that may help than what not get access to anything? Uh, and then another answerless question, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, it is really tricky. And then you can also ask the question if whether the patient themselves puts the uh, the numbers into the app and then you have only the interface which tells you. You don't save any information because the information that you get through or via the, uh, the interface itself is just, you know, or deleted, but you take this information and then you put it into your next screen, <laughs> right next to this screen that we're talking to, for example, and that may might be the e-health record or something like that. So that becomes also some, that, that poses a really tricky, um, you know, waiting where, where in this gray scale are you really? And it, yeah, I really do see um, all of the, uh, the questions that you have and where they come from. But as far as innovation goes, and, and I think that you were onto something there, I think working with innovation also means breaking glass barriers and you know kicking doors in to just provoke the change. I am a sole uh, speaker about the, the provoking change by just doing things and see what's gonna happen because as innovation managers, this is something that I, as a head of innovation, always have been watching for, you know, let's do it. Let's try to do it. What can go wrong and what's go wrong? That's the learning for us. And you as a company, I don't think I have never been in that kind of situation where we as a company actually have been prosecuted or something like that just for trying. But we have had, when I was working for Karolinska Institute, uh, we had the data inspection, the agency for uh, inspection of data for your uh, information, uh, Chris, uh, said that the, the consent that we had, the letter of consent that we had was too broad and too wide, and it was spanning over too much time. So we had to change that. So that's like what's going to happen, but you're not going to get fined. You're not going to go behind bars. But I think it's really important for us to remember always to push the boundaries as, you know, working with innovation in this kind of field. And I totally agree with you, Nelia. And I, th I think it's also the question of, I mean, if you really look at the your purpose, I mean, innovating with a purpose. And in our space, of course, it's for really great purposes to help people to live better lives. I mean, that's uh, as long as you're serious about that and, and keep that at the top of your head all every day, all the time, then the regulations become secondary. Obviously, you need to fulfill regulations as well, but you should not let them control what you are trying to do. So I think that that's for sure that balance as well. Yeah, and then we also also need to wait in like the patient safety and, and the care itself, the safety of that one. I One anecdote of mine is was I was working actually with Paolo Macchiarini at Karolinska University Hospital. And that is when we are really stepping out of the gray zones and into the really dark side of innovation. Um, and and it that, that makes it really clear on where to draw the boundaries. If mm -hmm. we have the quality and the safety and security, 
we're going to be fine, I think, because as you mentioned, Helena, the purpose is key in this. Yeah. If I can go back to what you were saying, Noelia, a little bit about you have to kind of try it before you really know whether it works or not, whether it'll actually have the benefit or the risk that you think. And so much of the things that we're experiencing now in the enablement of technologies behind healthcare, uh, you can't know. You can't look at something before and analyze that. And that's what a lot of regulation is also designed on is the learnings and to control the risks as much as possible. But both the regulators and the innovators are looking at an unknown future where they don't know how is this application going to be able to be used? How could this capability now affect things? Uh, and it's unpredictable in many cases. So you go out with the best intent, like you say, Helena, uh, absolutely. And I believe most people do. Um, and then design as much as you can for the protection and safety. So better not do something if you're not sure it's going to cause serious harm, of course. Uh, but if you know that there's no life harm that will come from us doing this, uh, then often it is worth the step because otherwise then we will never know and regulators won't know either whether it's worth protecting or, or necessary to protect. Yeah. Oh, indeed. And I think also the purpose also goes to, I mean, for society as such, I mean, the life science industry as, as, a, as a whole has the sole purpose of of helping people and society. So there is really that, I mean, risk benefit conversation that we're always having, right? Depending on what is the purpose of this specific solution, what are the risks that we are pos posing to the patients, but also what are the benefits by releasing this product, actually? There, there's never zero risk, um, but of course the, the benefit needs to outweigh the risks heavily. Okay, amazing. Sounds like you had a really good discussion there about, about that, that topic. And Ellie, are you happy with that? Yeah, uh, like the ladies said, there was no, I didn't expect to get a solid answer, a specific one. If someone had that in their head, that'd be great. But I think this is something that will just always be changing and ongoing. So a lot of it is just about what are you considering and how are you approaching it? It's not kind of a fixed one answer or another. Uh, so I think those were some great insights. Okay, amazing, amazing. Well, let's move on. Um, Helena, we'll come to you next. And um, you came to me with a question posed of what tech trends do you foresee digitalization in the space to come in the years to come? How do you mean? Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm of course, as an innovator, and we all are into the innovation space, we're always looking for next uh, trends and what to bring on. But I think also for our industry as such, which is maybe by tradition, a very conservative one. It's really was about, uh, I think, spotting what's going on out there in the tech innovation space in different industries, and also bringing that to the benefit of the life science sector. And if you look a little bit, uh, I was a, also very curious with the with the ladies here with me in the panel who has worked so also in the digitization area. So clearly, what you see as um, as areas to bring on next into the health tech sector? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I can jump in first with some first thoughts then maybe. Um, yeah. I, beyond, besides working very focused with digital technologies around mental health, I'm also a huge nerd and a gamer personally. 
So what I'm actually from a when it comes to treatment in the sense of meeting and engaging with the person you're treating, uh, whether it's mental health or it could be consulting uh, or uh, some other form of treatment uh, where you're not necessarily physically applying something, some kind of treatment. I think the whole multiple realities of technology are going to be more used. Um, and it's not just because it's fun, creative virtual reality worlds, but actually some people may feel safer interacting as an avatar. It might be less intimidating for them opening up about difficult topics. Um, I know there's a lot of use with virtual reality on people with Alzheimer's, uh, taking them back to neighborhoods from their childhood that have been recreated. And that can actually help them kind of remember things and have a little bit more mental stability for a partially longer time, still early studies. So, uh, but this whole utilization of putting people in spaces where they can communicate better what's going on with them physically or mentally uh, and spaces that help kind of enable us to visualize or talk in the same way. One big issue for mental health is about diagnoses. Um, people describe and experience mental health challenges differently. And then the medical professional has to try and pull out whether this is something to worry about or not. Um, and so if they're able to share some kind of virtually created space or some kind of visualization, uh, but also tracking. Um, so there are some studies that show you can detect uh, declining mental health quality based on spending patterns. Uh, another thing to be you know, proven in a bigger sense, but early correlations that people who have weakening poor mental health, depression and stress start to do more erratic spending and things out of pattern. Um, and then there's this whole discussion of who, how the people diagnosing this doesn't don't see that, and uh, they don't have access to your spending. And I'm not; they may or maybe should or shouldn't. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> um, but this whole thing about tracking and and being enabled through additional data, as long as it's with consent and awareness, uh, and then the utilization of additional uh, realities or interfaces, uh, I think, are the two big ones that I see. Yeah, yeah, I think you're really on to something there. Um, I tend to zoom out a bit on the organizational parts and the business parts of it, um, spanning over the entire organization. And when it comes to the business model, uh, which is there to enable us to to go to the market and have or have a new market uh, access or entry, we need to use the business model such as that we can identify the patient need and also to see the treatment success. And how do we do this? Yeah, we could, you know, um, make sure that we have great margins and great margin potential through actually owning the, uh, the value chain that we as a company can do and how can we do this? Um, and also to, to make sure that we have the recurring revenues through built-in patient retention systems, where you follow the patients, where you monitor the patients remotely and such. What do you need to have this? You need to be um, owning the, the, the patient uh, access directly to it. And you need to know how to acquisit uh, patients through maybe paid marketing or um, something in, as such. Uh, and what you ultimately need to also make sure that you're doing is to actually directly address the patient's need when you're doing this. And that's something that you so nicely were mentioning and touching there, Anneli. And 
you also need to always have these recurring checkups with the patients in order to retain the patient always to not only use you as an use and abuse service and then might they maybe go for another one. Um, I don't know if anybody of you have ever heard about something called uh, Vimpros in the remote patient monitoring and the tech community when it comes to this. And it stands for vertically integrated micro providers, which means that you are talking, for example, for your own uh, psychological health um, vertical, for example. And then Helena, maybe Bull Diagnostics as a company, you, you have the services and you have the products to actually get home to the patients. If we look to the to the different projects that are going on in the northern Sweden, where you are soon to deliver uh, blood sampling uh, material, uh, where you can extract blood from a patient, and then you have a drone transporting this into to a hospital, that's where you can make sure that you have. This is maybe more relevant, but you can have a subscriptive model towards the patient, where you can provide for the services using your products, but maybe it's going to be more twisted into a service thing rather than using your 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 super concrete and tangible products uh, as such and by doing that also i think that you will see a, a hyper growth of the tech focus um, built on systems to enable all of these things too um talking from both of your perspectives um such a great uh, twist that you also brought the business model perspective into it, I think, because that's, of course, obviously it has to be sustainable in, in the long run and a viable business as well. Otherwise, um, uh, it, it won't be there forever. I'm thinking also that, I mean, coming from, from, from an industry and from a background, when you have this sort of journey, uh, providing instruments or actually also in the treatment space you actually provide the apparatus more than anything else as a starting point and then moving gradually to this sort of service-based system and also I must also add I think also from from of course performance and capability perspective to execute more and more this in the cloud like in all industries I think that's really uh, a trend that is maybe not so new in a way, but for the for the space of life science and the conservative space, it's actually quite a big step. But you are spot on, I think, when that also enables you to have a more direct, not only access to the patient, but also service the patient directly. Um, obviously linking all kinds of information, including uh, medical professionals, of course, by the way. So, uh, but to make it like more of a of system of systems concept that you have different kind of you have the holistic system and you have that connected and then you can have anything from data collectors or your blood withdrawals that you mentioned Noelia for instance to the whole um, uh, professional uh, pro provide, providing diagnosis or, or whatever the professional part connected to it as well it becomes more of an entity than these separate different parts. And I think that's actually the whole cloud infrastructure technology is going to provide a, a great opportunity for, for life science. If I can jump in on this as well, um, when we think a little bit about kind of both of your perspectives here, one funny uh, experience that we've been looking into some research on, especially around uh, 
digital health uh, solutions that are more oriented toward the end user. Uh, from a, it can be from a in collaboration with a medical provider or not. And um, the it's often the case that the more highly uh, documented, researched solutions that are oriented towards an end user um, have fewer users than very well-designed, user-oriented, well-marketed, but maybe poorly researched and poorly uh, kind of uh, having studies or collaborations with healthcare, actual healthcare providers. They have huge, huge acquisitions because they know how to position and market, uh, but they're based on much less. And I feel like we're in this, my experience has been that there's this interesting um, connection or disconnection between the business world now and the business side, and especially in, in, at least in Denmark here, public health, where the researchers, the universities and the public health providers have fantastic work research uh, and solutions, but they're not connected into the business world with UX designers and marketeers or growth hackers to actually get that kind of user experience interface out there. And so we see two halves of the solution. And what I would not to pose a new question, because I know we have great questions already, but what I'd love to hear, talk about at some point is this, how do we bring these two closer together? Because I think they both have the same intent of helping people uh, and they're working with what they have and know. Uh, and how much more powerful would that be if we could get that stronger together? I think that has a lot to do with whom is behind uh, certain companies, etc., and, and the kind of competence that these companies withhold, to be honest with you, because oftentimes when you see, for example, telemedicine companies coming in there, there are a lot of passionate people within it coming or springing from within the healthcare and life science area, which has not the technology, nor do they have the UX thinking around it, to be honest with you. And it, it's really, it's it's withdrawing so much energy for them to just get it out there. So they just tend to forget about it. But what we can see, at least from some of our, I would say, uh, telemedicine companies internationally, they have actually understood this. And we can see that some of them are having an, a super fast growth by doing this, as you were talking about, like the acquisition of newcomers, new customers or paying clients or patients. It's really hard to, to, to put them somewhere in the folder and naming them. Um, but you can see what you're what you're talking about is super important for all of the companies actively working within this field. And I think also that when you can attract the right tech talent by having this cause of the company that you want to do, you're going to have this as a plus. And I see and I think uh, that we are going to start seeing that this comes more and more together. But I think also that that's on a time horizon of five years from now, unfortunately. That's why we're here, right? <laughs> Indeed. And can I just connect to that? Because I actually had a couple of years back the reason to, to discuss also the acceptance level is one end of it, but also the the wanted position with a lot of, of uh, hospital professionals and clinicians in terms of UX specifically. Mm -hmm. Because I think you definitely, then we go to the end user and that space, then UX becomes always important it is, 
But in that space, it also becomes a real differentiator, as you said. It, it can even not only be that it's easy to use, it can also be that it's a bit cool and, and it looks a bit attractive. And I think you and Ali was the one also brought on this about feeling safe and secure when using a product. That's also a very important perspective. That's not always connected to the actual professionalism behind it uh, in the clinical sense. But I found it very interesting in that conversation with those clinicians where to, to put that in this conservative end, what would you be willing to accept in terms of, of intuitive and also maybe more attractive color schemes that serves your purpose, etc., for the end user, but still feel secure from a clinical professional perspective that is serious enough, that it doesn't become that you get fooled by this modern and, and very cool, there are avatars everywhere and so on, and then still feel this is also serious research behind it from the clinical perspective. I think that acceptance level is uh, very similar to when we talk about autonomous cars, etc. The technology you can have, but what is the acceptance level in society? And, and that will take some time, but I think it's so important for innovators like ourselves to pushing that perspective as well, that it doesn't have to be either or the really research-based clinical performance or a modern and intuitive and secure setting on, on how to work with the system. So I think that's uh, also a trend that I hope uh, is uh, also going, well, five years it could be in a way, but, but also let's push there, push to get there and make that the, sta the, the, the de facto standard, not just something in the future, but actually that's where we want to be. Yeah, and I, I think I would say it all boils down to the simplicity of a product or a service and how it's designed. Is it easy for me to use it? Is it intuitive? And, and do I want to, you know, start using it on a daily basis, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think the design itself, colors and, and things like these are, uh, of course, they are a key uh, key ingredient for success. But I think also the usability and and the friendliness of of the uh, those interfaces are most important uh, when in terms of having this recurring <laughs> users all the time. Because if I I have become so lazy now, so if I log on, try to log on to some web page that requires logging on. I would like to always use some sort of an e-legitimation, um, e uh, EID, sorry, uh, such as BankID or Freya or what do we use? And if I can't do it, that, do that in a simple way. Even if I, if I need to put my numbers in there into this small box, for me, I, I'm like, you know, just send a signal to my cell phone <laughs> so that I can <laughs> identify myself. And I think that we're gonna move into this and, and what, you know, is behind this entry level is for me of lesser uh, importance, but I think you you are right in the terms of you know it's going to be super important to have this connected uh, design and it's it's really attractive to your eyes and also to have it's it's really heavily backed by by the proper investigative and research uh, things. One challenge here is that digital technologies are getting easier and easier to develop by more people, uh, which means as an, in an end user treat, uh, patient perspective, 
uh, on average, people delete 80% of their apps after two days because the logon was clunky or something else happened. Mm -hmm. And they know there's other solutions, right? There's 20,000 mental health apps. Why am I going to waste time on this one? And on the other side, Helena, you've probably heard some stories from your research about um, the treatment professionals are bombarded all the time with either people who want to test and partner and they want a legitimate solution, but there's 20 of them trying to solve the same thing. Plus, it all there are existing workflows in healthcare, right? A lot of their work is designed around efficient healthcare processes, structures, methodologies, uh, and some of these technologies disrupt that. Uh, and if it's unproven, then you need to kind of take extra, extra time, which is time away from patients potentially. So both sides of the, of if you're an innovator who's in the middle of these two sides, you may be one side or the other also, but if you're in the middle of these two sides, you have to think into both not being too disruptive on the day-to-day -day workflow of the providers to validate and prove the solution, let alone use it after, but also know that you are one of who knows how many are who are approaching these people. Uh, and there's a lot of frustration I found from the digital development side of getting access to healthcare providers. Um, but you can understand why when they're bombarded with how many, but then I feel like there needs to almost be this kind of venture, like an investment arm, how right now investors have fund managers who go around and look at companies all the time to filter them out. Healthcare providers need that almost now too. And then that's the way into the healthcare professionals so that they know like serious people with a legitimate problem to solve and maybe some capability to solve it, then let's match them. Because right now there's no structured or very few structured ways to do it, it seems, uh, if you're not already working in the uh, as a healthcare provider. Um, and so I think until we solve this uh, as well, then there's going to be a lot of struggles on both sides. But here yeah. we move to that in interesting topic of co-creation as well, I think, mm. because uh, that's also one real key, of course. I mean, it's easier said than done, but also finding that you also create that kind of co-creation relationship with medical professionals at an early stage, not only going to, to validate what you have already done, but I mean, that's a really, for me, a really key success factor. And, and maybe also being set, being in the country that we all are, that's actually not super easy in, our, in the Swedish setting. But if you look a little bit more broadly, uh, that comes a bit more easy to operate. But I think it's it's also a fundamental. The, the products get better that way, that's for sure, and the system solutions. When you can do it that way, that, that always gets better. I think that one of the prerequisites, they are. I usually take stand from is also the design thinking um, modus and, and also the double diamond thing, which allows you to iterate always on these kinds of things and get back and get, get better all the time. And it has proven to be super efficient, but of course it's a model that's been around for quite some time and it can, can you know, <laughs> as an innovator, it can always get better, right? Um, and also to, to, to bear in mind the types of pers persons that work in the healthcare settings are, oftentimes super, if we're going to take stand from the disk model, super green, it should be happy and clappy always and super easy. And you don't, you know, you don't want to put in so much time into what you're, um, to what you're using. It, it just should be there and just functioning, um, which is a super important uh, key thing. <laughs> Indeed. 
You want to spend uh, your time on the results and the outcome of the system, not on the system itself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, amazing guys. That's a really good um, discussion there, <laughs> um, which, which is which is pretty awesome. Now let's move on um, to the last person here, Noelia. Now you came to me with the phrase telemedicine, the companies and their platforms. Should these be seen as they are communication platforms? or as software as medical device. The, this implies the use of other regulations and rules depending on what you're aiming for, setting aside HIPAA or GDPR and such. Can you just go into a bit more detail for us? Yeah, it's, it's very uh, looping back to the first discussions that we had in this call, but it really uh, boils down to the fact that the, the purpose of the use of uh, a platform and, and the technology that we have built into the platform uh, and how, where is the boundary to be set and which are the, uh, the proper regulations to, to be used. I've been working so long and so hard to, to find out the right ways forward in, in trying to figure it out. Uh, for me, it has become super clear. Um, it might be some kind of provocative, but when you are using your cellular phone together with an interface like we are doing now, uh, it's not a software as a medical device and you shouldn't be using the MDR regulations to it. But if you connect something to this platform or to this interface, that product or service does, if you're using it for, for the purpose of, of uh, keeping health records or evaluating um, heartbeats and respiratory frequencies and stuff like that, that in itself needs to be uh, evaluated and, and you know, accordingly to, uh, to the MDR because those are softwares as medical devices. But there is nothing that says that even though if you connect something like this to a communication platform, that the communication platform itself uh, becomes um, a software as a medical device. But that is really something that's super unclear. And throughout Europe, when I looked into this, uh, trying to, to have the market entries, for example, in, in, in Germany, that was a prerequisite to actually be able to, to operate in the country. Uh, so again, provoking uh, this kind of change and making, because we're only humans and, and uh, lawyers are humans and we all can you know, interpret things differently. And the question is, you know, how do you see these things, Helena and Anneli, and what are your inputs to it? And what, what do you think about it? I mean, I think it also a bit depends actually what you are using that connection for. Is that your sort of infrastructure for, as I was alluding to earlier, it was more like using uh, communication infrastructure to actually even maybe uh, move computing, etc., to the cloud or some fog system thinking around it and so on. Then that I can sort of see as being, of course, part of the whole solution hence the medical device. But if you're thinking about it as a communication platform per se, then I guess the question you have to ask yourself is how dangerous is, is it when it disconnects? And if, if that sort of doesn't really matter, then for sure it doesn't, so for me, it doesn't at all needs to be seen as part of your, of your device. That, you know, different interpretations, like you said, but that, that's, uh, I guess, my 
my input on, on this one. What do you think, Anneli? You also had a lot of thoughts around that. <laughs> yeah, I, as Chris said at the beginning, I'm, I'm a long-winded kind of person. <laughs> we've got time, we've got time. Uh, okay, Go good. for it. No, well, I, if I can be, I don't know if this is controversial to say or not, but I think the idea of classifying something a medical device or not is too simplistic. It's a very old-fashioned attitude, is something a medical device or not, whereas let's say you have a platform that takes some kind of input from you and then routes you to a professional that you speak to via video teams call, it doesn't matter. Uh, then the fact that that system has to decide who you talk to theoretically is a medical device. Whereas I feel like we should accept that the world is complex, both the medical world, medical treatment world and technology world. Uh, and whereas I wouldn't, classify, oh, that's a medical device, and thus you need to prove the same X as every other medical device, I would say, okay, if it's used for, it's a communication platform used for medical purposes, then is it diagnostics? Maybe that's one thing. If it's about orienting to a certain provider type, but that provider can then re-send you to another place if maybe you ended the wrong way. Well, as you say, Noelia, no one's going to be lost from that. Like, we won't Sorry, I, I'm not, I apologize if that was Helena who said that, but um, the person won't not be treated. It just the first guess was maybe wrong a small percentage of the time. It's the same if you're trying to call your insurance provider and like, oh, you need to speak to this department and they transfer you. Um, but because there's a decision being made by a system, I believe technically that falls under the requirements. So my personal hope is that we start to look into regulations that instead of trying to make us comfortable and protect in case of anything possible, we actually acknowledge the complexity of it and maybe make four regulations that are more oriented instead of yes, no regulations, which I think are important. They protect people, but they can hold some things back. And this is where I usually tend to say that we have the CE marking, which vouches for the quality and the systemic quality and all of these things. And if you're actually compliant with the, all of the different ISO standards, you're gonna, at the end of the day, be uh, certified. But whether, uh, whereas you have this uh, medical device software thingy in, built into your overall service, um, that's 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 the problem that I have been facing because if you have this connected to it, uh, it becomes also a wrongly demand from the users or the even the governments that you need to be MDR or you know um, have all of this together, even though if you're not, because it comes also from a company perspective together with a lot of different costs. You have to have these audits. You have to have these and these and these things. Whereas I think that if you are compliant to FDA approvals or to the uh, CE markings that we have in, in Europe, you are going to be fine. Uh, and that's where I really need to, uh, you know, make my case even clearer when I when I work with this as well, because there it, it's such a confusion out there when you're talking about these things. Um, and, and it also always boils down to the exact uh, conversation that you were talking about just now, Anneli, because we need to start seeing it, the complexity, as you mentioned, it's there are, you know, the service you have or the technology that you have is working from the configuration of a big network. You have things 
connecting in all of the, all of the time in different ways, different pathways, infrastructure, etc. So if you're compliant to the data privacy ISO standard and the GDPR, you're going to be fine infrastructural-wise, but you're not going to be fine quality-wise, maybe. And I think that we have to have the same kind of approach to this. And then DMDR just becomes uh, an ad hoc thing, which you have to also comply to for the specific software that you use to, to, to take decisions on where to direct the patient itself. And if you're analyzing measurements and, and stuff like that. But overall, I think it, it the complexity tends to, to be too complex. So people tend to just leave it. But if we can use the good old CE markings, I think that we can <laughs> de-dramatize this in, in a good way. Mm. I agree. And I think we can always compare it also to what would happen if you simply met with the person, I mean, with the, the, the clinical expert or whatever. I mean, they're actually also sometimes wrong <laughs> or they don't show <laughs> up to your meeting. I mean, so so it, it's always makes some sense to compare it to what will be the other alternative uh, meet. And and uh, I think when, when automizing and putting some smartness into diagnostics, but um, maybe also even into treatment, I think that's also an interesting acceptance level conversation. So does a medical device need to be better than the best expert in the world or, or does it need to be top 10 percent in the world or is it fine if it's better than the average expert in the world yeah. or, or where is the i mean where is the acceptance criteria i think that's an important uh, conversation to have in society as well where are we willing to accept the risk with a software solution as we are talking about in this case versus meeting with a person exactly and and that's what i think i have used also as as a comparison since i come from the ambulance industry for one part of my my professional career and have been working so closely to the dispatch centers such as sos alarm for example and the acceptance of this is that we're using sos alarm as a telephone interchange right so we call there, we get an advice, oh, stay home, lay down, wait for an ambulance or call back if you get worse or you're not our case, you go to your health central or something like that. And then to connect back to what you, I think, Helena said from the beginning, what happens if the call shuts down, et cetera, et cetera, from the perspective of this telecommunicative uh, software that we might have been using, um, but to take this to the extent that we should we then, when I'm calling to SOS Alarm, for example, in Sweden or 911 in, in the US, should we demand to have the entire uh, uh, system of, um, what do you call it? Uh, network, thank you. <laughs> network of telephone, cellulars, et cetera, et cetera, antennas, et cetera. Should we then demand them, them to be qualified into some sort of a medical device thing just to be sure that we're safe when we call to these dispatch centers. That's a very provocative statement that I just did there, but it tends to start the, the, the processes of thinking in the people that I'm talking about, exactly as you did, Helena, when it, what's the difference between talking to a real human, IRL? Okay, great. I want to throw something in there. Obviously, we just talk about different platforms. Do you believe that 
innovation itself has came a long way during the pandemic or do you think it's sort of stopped a little bit? Then I would say, what is innovation in this area? <laughs> innovation could actually be, because we're talking about that, we are so rudimentary in healthcare settings. So innovation could be whatever things that we're doing uh, or are we provoking some new things to happen or is that just linear development? Uh, but I think that when we are starting to create new value streams, that's when we are talking about real innovation in this area. I think if we talk about innovation from a behavioral standpoint, uh, specifically in in the healthcare industry, for a long time there was mistrust in telehealth. I mean, not universally. There are many who were fine with it, but there is some who've been quite a bit conservative that it's just not the same and it's not as good as talking to a person and it may or may not be in different circumstances but there are many more applications of it than i think it has always been used for and by the need of having to have telemedicine available now uh it's opened up i think a lot of professionals eyes that okay to a, a much farther degree it is good enough. It may or may not be as good in every circumstance, but it is a good enough for a lot. And a big uh, benefit is more access to healthcare, right? I mean, we can all agree, the more people who can get access to the care they need, the better. Um, so I think that behavioral change from an industry standpoint is good if we can count that as innovation. Um, but I'm not sure, similar to what Noelia says, I'm actually not sure if we see like these complete groundbreaking ideas coming out that weren't understood before. They just may be easier to move forward now than they were. And I'm thinking yeah. maybe maybe that it's more creates this with the, that the acceptance level has taken maybe a, a big step, I must say, than that what we are talking about. That maybe enables new innovations because we don't have to fight that part so much. It hasn't in itself created any new innovation, but it at least it, it leveled the, the game a little bit. And then you can step uh, take the next step from there. But um, I agree with you. I don't see any any true new innovation or value streams, however you want to frame it, coming out of the of the pandemic situation itself. Yeah, I, I would also agree into that that the pandemic itself has served as a facilitator for for the overall uh, <laughs> regular development uh, activities going on and, and having also the lights shed on it, put them on the on the scene. Uh, to, to show off what we really can do by just using technology that has been around for such a long time. I'm not going into the AI field, but AI is some, <laughs> <laughs> one of those things. <laughs> okay, amazing. I thought I'd just throw that question in there just to, just to test you guys, of, of, of course. Um, right, we'll leave it there. This is the Evolution Exchange podcast. I do want to say a massive thank you to Noelia, Helena, Anneli, you guys have been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for listening. Now, if you would like to reach out and join with our upcoming podcast, hit me up via LinkedIn or drop me an email. It's chris.asperage at evolution-nordics.com. See you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.